You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. Now, back to the show. That sound is our cue for the Straight Talk segment here on Real Presence Live. Father James Gross joining you, a priest from the Diocese of Fargo, usually joined by Father Jason Leffer, but he uh, was unable to make it into town today. You know, it's surprising that that hasn't happened more frequently in the several years that we have been co-hosting the program uh, when you look at what weather conditions can be like. Um, it's always somewhat deceiving when you're right in the middle of town. Uh, there is a steady northerly wind about 20 miles per hour and I'm sure that it's no picnic at all out in open country. But um, uh, our um, plows and our crews have been doing very well trying to get uh, out and about to do a, a, a primary clearing of many of the streets. But a lot of that work is going to be largely undone by the end of the day today with the additional uh, snow that we have coming down. But wherever you are, uh, we invite you to join us in this um, uh, conversation for the next few minutes. 877-795-0122 is that number. We also uh, welcome questions uh, to be submitted uh, through our Facebook page at Real Presence Radio. And uh, there are several questions that have been submitted that I want to get to in a few moments. I just have a couple of other things uh, to talk about. First of all, there is some breaking news that came down just this morning in our local area of the church. Um, a new bishop has been named for the Diocese of St. Cloud, Minnesota. And there are numerous communities within that diocese which are on the fringes, you might say, of various stations and Real Presence Radio. So I know that we have quite a few listeners who are territorially within the Diocese of St. Cloud but are managing to uh, listen to our programming. This gentleman's name is Father Patrick Neary, um, and he is a uh, priest of the Congregation of the Holy Cross. This is a religious order that runs uh, Notre Dame University as well as numerous other sorts of um, uh, missionary projects uh, throughout the world. Um, Father Patrick uh, is a native of Indiana, an alumnus of Notre Dame, and had been the rector of the seminary there, uh, the Moreau Seminary on the campus of Notre Dame. Most recently, he has been the um, pastor of a parish in Portland, Oregon, and uh, also has served in Africa for a number of years. So Bishop Donald Kettler... Uh, at the age of 78, has been granted his retirement, and the diocese is going to be planning uh, the ordination mass at some point within the next couple of months, I would presume. Um, so uh, Bishop Kettler, as every bishop, uh, when they approached the age of 75, submitted, according to church law, a letter of resignation, and uh, he has been patiently awaiting the word uh, to come down from the Holy See. So Pope Francis made that uh, announcement uh, public here this morning. Uh, congratulations to uh, Bishop-elect Patrick and um, uh, to the people of the Diocese of St. Cloud, and a hearty thanks to the leadership of Bishop Donald Kettler, uh, who for, I guess, almost uh, the last 10 years or so had served as bishop in the Diocese of St. Cloud. Prior to that, uh, Bishop Kettler had served as the bishop in Fairbanks, Alaska, and he is a uh, South Dakota native, so he'll be uh, retiring back to, S to South Dakota, as I understand it. Um, this coming year, 
we have an interesting circumstance with regard to the day of the week on which Christmas Day falls. Uh, a lot of people get used to a certain rhythm of how things work with the season of Christmas. First of all, um, forgive me for j- jumping uh, quickly on this uh, canard, but uh, there are a lot of people who define the Christmas season as what ha- unfolds during actually the season of Advent. That um, this is not, technically speaking, the season of Christmas. We're in the liturgical season of Advent. Advent, where we are um, preparing for uh, in joyful preparation with a, a, a sort of penitential um, uh, flavor to it for the return of Christ in glory. With the final days of Advent, we are going to be reflecting more specifically on the uh, infancy narratives from the Gospels of St. Matthew and St. Luke and looking at the circumstances and the setting in which uh, Jesus was born, uh, the Son of God uh, became flesh and uh, was born for us. So what happens with subsequent uh, feast days, at least with the way that the liturgical laws work in the church here in the United States, when Christmas falls on a Sunday? Well, first of all, it's a two-for-one special, you might say, that uh, Sunday, every Sunday is a holy day of obligation. It is the Lord's Day. It is our participation in the gift of the Sabbath and an opportunity to render render praise to God. So the fact that Christmas lands on a Saturday takes precedence. And so we have four full weeks of the season of Advent. This coming Sunday is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and there will be numerous days where that fourth candle on the Advent wreath will be uh, burned down some, perhaps uh, significantly more than a lot of uh, usual years. So what would typically happen, let's say just for for giggles. Let's say that if Christmas Day were on a Friday, what would happen is that the following Sunday would be the celebration of the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And we're very used to that rhythm of Holy Family being celebrated on a Sunday following Christmas Day. Well, what happens to it this year? Because the following Sunday after Christmas is January 1st, there is already a solemnity on that day which does not get bumped off that day. That solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God, takes precedence. So that is what's going to be celebrated on January 1st. Well, what happens to Holy Family? It is relegated to a more traditional date of December 30th. So this year, the 30th of uh, the the 30th of December happens to be on a Friday, and uh, that's going to be the celebration of Holy Family. So also, let's look at Epiphany. Uh, the Feast of Epiphany the, of the Three Kings, the Magi. Typically what happens what, what happens typically here is that uh, Epiphany comes in on uh, the Sunday following New Year's Day, January 1st. But this year, because of the way things are working, um, well, it's going to be on the following Sunday. Traditionally, Epiphany is January 6th. That is Friday, uh, January 6th. Uh, typically, the 6th of January, 12 days after Christmas Day, is when the uh, celebration of Epiphany takes place. But what's going to happen this year is that Epiphany will be celebrated a week after uh, the 1st of January, January 8th. And then what's going to happen is 
baptism of the Lord will be celebrated on Monday the 9th of January as the rank of a feast. So the season of Christmas runs this year through the 9th of January rather than uh, baptism of the Lord being on a Sunday following Epiphany Sunday. So if you're confused, you're not alone. Um, That happens to be a, a number of us. So I've just received word that we have a special guest joining us. Uh, Welcome to Real Presence Live. Well, we're waiting for for our guest in just a moment. Well, we're going to wait for a moment in in order to receive that, uh, that person. So... Um, we'll we'll get back to uh, get to them in just a moment. So sorry for those technical difficulties. There is a quick question here about why do we celebrate Christmas Eve Mass at midnight, but for the Easter Vigil we celebrate at sundown. Um, the uh, the the uh, necessary requirement with regard to the Easter Vigil is that it be nightfall, and we as a, a matter, I guess, mostly of expedience, try to go at an early time where you've just achieved nightfall rather than to wait until the middle of the night. The midnight uh, tradition is uh, of a different nature than that. And actually with the revised uh, Roman Missal, the terminology that they use is mass during the night. So if your particular parish is celebrating mass that does not begin at midnight, but at another time, it's not that they're technically breaking some sort of rule. They're keeping to the spirit of having a mass during the night as part of the Christmas celebration. Some places, uh, because of tradition, will maintain it for 12 midnight. Others may have it at an earlier hour, but within the mid to late evening in order to satisfy that, uh, that request. There is a vigil mass to be celebrated, which in many parishes is the most heavily attended. And then there are two options for Christmas Day, the mass at dawn, and then the Mass during the day. The Gospel reading for the Mass at dawn reflects the arrival of the shepherds to the stable at Bethlehem, and the Mass during the day uses the prologue of the Gospel of St. John, uh, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So I believe we have our caller on the line. Welcome to Real Presence Live. Father Gross? Father Leffer, welcome, welcome. It's good to hear your voice. Well, good morning. I I, I think you have to hold things down without me. <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's a struggle, but uh, we'll 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 survive somehow. Uh, give us a report uh, there on kind of a man on the street report from up by Pizek. What's it like up there? Yeah, well, uh, the winds are picking up. It's blowing blowing pretty hard now. Wouldn't, wouldn't advise anybody to be out traveling right now. It's pretty pretty uh, pretty bad conditions. Only spent three hours blowing snow yesterday, so it wasn't too bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 a he- heavy wet snow, uh, what they call a heart attack snow. So um, yeah, that's, that's, be sure and take it easy out there. Well, that's that's right. And so you know, and and actually, I mean, it was it was gorgeous. It was like a, yesterday was like a Hallmark Christmas uh, movie. You know, the wasn't it though? Perfect, perfect big snow coming down, nice thirty four degrees, but. You know that's dangerous. You got you got to get out there and move all that snow because the negative temperatures are coming and it's going to freeze really solid, and then then you won't be able to get your doors open or anything. Exactly, exactly. So what uh, what what else do you have going on up there? You're uh, kind of looking ahead for these uh, busy next few days, I'm sure, like the rest of us. Yep, that, that's right. We're we're 
head, heading into the Christmas, uh, it's called the Christmas Novena now, and, you know, the transition's going to happen where we're really focusing on the coming of Christ and uh, getting ready for the, the Holy Days. Uh, I heard you talking about, you know, the Mass times and stuff for Christmas, and uh, we, we do have a Midnight Mass, and, and it's, you know, not everybody takes advantage of it, but um, the, the ones who do, they, you know, a lot of it, I think, is they talk about how it affected them as a child, and it's so powerful, and I think even to this day, you know, if, if people have grace to, if the priest has grace to have Mass at midnight and the people are willing to come, it's, it's a very beautiful and powerful experience. Yes, indeed. You had mentioned these final days as we are approaching the season, the uh, solemnity of Christmas. Um, and there's one other thing that I was going to talk about. So just to put you on the spot, I wanted to hear what you had to say about this. There are certain um, antiphons that are used in the liturgy. Um, they are used at masses during the gospel acclamation. They are also used during the um, uh, evening prayer for liturgy of the hours from the 17th through the 23rd of December, which are known as the O antiphons. Um, uh, would you want to just uh, speak a little bit to that, Father Leffer, and, and what those are all about? Yeah, ab absolutely. So uh, each one of these antiphons has a specific day, and they're, they're very ancient, and we've been using them, I think, even before the, the solemnity of Christmas itself was established in the Church, these O antiphons have been prayed by the Church for the coming of Christ. And and they come from the, the prophet Isaiah. And what, what people need to pay, uh, realize is that Advent itself and these little antiphons and all kind of these themes preparing for Christmas, in, in one way, the primary meaning for all these has to do with the end of time and the new heavens and the new earth. And, and because the early church was expecting the return of Christ very soon. And so, so that, was, that was much more real and prevalent in people's hearts and minds and early Christians than the Feast of Christmas. And then as, as Christ himself um, told us, you know, if, if your master goes off and he's delayed in returning, do, do, do not get weary and, and don't say, oh, my master's delayed and, and get weak in faith or let the light of the Holy Spirit go out in you, but remain faithful. And so the early church realized, oh, maybe he's not coming back right away. And that's when the whole thing about... Um, the identity of Christ, was he really born, was he really a man, was he, was he really God, was he born of a woman, was he not? And that's where the whole importance of celebrating Christmas every year came in, to say, like, yes, he truly is God, he truly is man, he truly is the Savior, he truly was born at a specific time, a specific place, and we need to remember this every year for, for the sake of our salvation, to remember that and honor it. Okay, so then these antiphons, what they are, from Isaiah, they're, they're prophetic, title of the Christ, who he is. They, they tell you who he is and what he's going to do, what he's going to accomplish when he comes the first time, but also when he comes at the end of time in final judgment and new heavens and the new earth. And so then each one of these days, like the, the nine days before Christmas, they take on a special flavor or character based on those titles. And I'll just use one of them as an example. The, oh, the, the one that talks about the light rising in the east. And what's so beautiful about this, it always comes on the shortest day of light in the Northern Hemisphere of the year. And right. so, oh, it, radiant it dawn, splendor of eternal light, son of justice. Yes. Exactly. And so the liturgy lines up with nature, grace builds the nature, it reminds us the Savior has come, He is coming again. Even though it's so dark and dreary out there right now, the light is coming in the darkness. And the, 
the, the people of God have seen the light, right? And the hope is born, salvation is coming, uh, you know, turn to the east and receive your salvation. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Father. And we um, just have a couple of brief minutes left on this segment here. So um, I'll, uh, I, I'll, if, uh, if you have a couple more minutes, we'll uh, keep you on the line because I'd like you to hear your feedback to a particular question that we have here as well um, that uh, was brought to us um, asking about the significance of the priest kissing the altar at the beginning of Mass. And uh, I just wanted to talk about that in particular, that um, that is a custom that we have when we enter the sanctuary, make a reverence uh, to the tabernacle or, or the altar, whatever the case may be, and then we uh, kiss the altar. And then also uh, we do that at the end as we are departing from the sanctuary. Now, in certain large masses like uh, the Chrisma Mass, the ordination, um, there will be allowances made to reverence as concelebrants with kissing the altar at the beginning, but typically not at the end. Typically, we will dismiss from our seated area and process out of the uh, sanctuary and out of the church. One of the ways that I think of that is that we are sort of undoing the treachery of the uh, kiss of betrayal of Judas, where there is um, uh, a sense of affection that is not uh, duplicitous, that is that doesn't have any sort of nefarious means by it as a way of addressing uh, Christ himself and showing our piety and showing our love for him. So, Father, when you think of that gesture of uh, kissing the altar uh, when you are celebrating Mass, um, what uh, would you want to share with us about uh, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a very powerful uh, gesture. And, yeah, Father Gross, thanks for that, that that beautiful image that you give there of undoing the kiss of Judas. That's a very powerful image. The, um, yeah, you know, a number of things come, come to mind on this. Like, one, so... It's just historically, in in the day of Christ, I mean, it would, it would be very natural when you greet somebody to give them a kiss of peace. Like, you, you know, oftentimes you'll see this in Europe now, still they'll say, especially in Italy, and so they'll, you know, give you a kiss on each side of your cheek or whatever. It's like a, a hand, what we do in America is a handshake kind of a thing. And so, and, and it's, it's representing that there's, that we're reconciled, we're friends, we're in a friendship relationship with one another. There's no animosity between us. And, and that's why, like, that kiss of Judas, why it's so poignant is because he uses this sign of affection, but it, it, it's actually, he's doing the exact opposite. So that's, like, so, like, a dagger to the heart. Um, also, then, we want, I want to pay attention to the word. It says, you reverence the altar. Okay, so a lot of people, and priests, myself included, like, if I can, I'll try to kiss the actual relic that's in the altar, but it's not actually asking you to reverence the relic. Is thing reverence the altar, and so that altar represents a number of things. It represents the cross of Christ. It represents the the, the altar sacrifice. It represents the table of of union. It it represents the tomb of Christ. And so, and actually, the documents of Acts two say it represents Christ Himself. And so, when the priest, as he's calling to mind his priesthood, actually, when he's coming forward and he's doing that reverence, he's calling to mind all of these things that I'm in union with Christ, I'm in union with His altar, I'm in union with the table um, fellowship, I'm in union with the cross, I'm in union with the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, I'm at, I'm at peace with it, I'm one with it, and I'm, I'm now entering into that presence of in persona cookie capitas for the sake of the people. 
Right, right. Very good. Well, thank you, uh, Father. I know that you've got uh, other things to tend to here today. So I'm so grateful that you uh, called in and we'll look forward to reuniting the dynamic duo uh, next month, uh, God and weather permitting. Awesome, Father Gross. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Father. Blessings to you and the rest of your day. So we do have a couple of additional uh, things to talk about as we have these final days coming up next week in the uh, season of Advent before Christmas. There are a couple of memorials of saints that tend to get lost in the shuffle, you might say, because of the primacy given to those final weekdays in the season of Advent. One of them is of St. Peter Canisius. That last name spelled C-A-N-I-S-I-U-S. Hockey fans may be familiar with a team that occasionally plays uh, the University of North Dakota, Canisius College, out of Buffalo, New York. It is a Catholic school named after him. St. Peter Canisius was a Dutch Jesuit Catholic priest. He was the first uh, Dutchman to join the Society of Jesus, the uh, religious order founded in the mid um, or in the earlier part of the uh, 16th century by Saint Ignatius of Loyola. And uh, Peter met um, Peter Faber, who was one of the founders of the Jesuits. And uh, Peter Canisius became one of the most influential Catholics of his time as a priest and doctor of the church. He uh, was canonized about a hundred years ago uh, by Pope Pius XI in uh, 1925. And Peter Canisius supervised the founding and maintenance of the first German-speaking Jesuit colleges, often with little resources at hand. At the same time, he preached in the whole vicinity in uh, German-speaking areas and debated and taught in universities. Due to his frequent travels between the colleges, which was a tedious and dangerous occupation at the time, he became known as the second apostle of Germany. One has to realize in the latter half of the 1500s, what was happening in that part of Europe at that time. Uh, The Protestant Reformation had convulsed into a number of uh, serious conflicts and wars uh, being uh, waged. And um, there was a lot of misinformation going around about what it was that the Catholic Church stood for, what it actually said, uh, things like that. And so the official response of the Catholic Church in the Counter-Reformation, most, I guess, officially represented by the Council of Trent, um, was uh, helped along through individual missionaries, uh, such as St. Peter Canisius, as I mentioned, who is uh, referred to as the second apostle of Germany. So he came into the these areas and he said listen I know that you have an idea about what uh, you think uh, Catholicism is all about and if there are certain things that you are decrying let's see whether or not those are actually what the church teaches or if those are abuses that have come about because of uh, malice or neglect or other things like that so he really worked to try to set the record straight and to assure people of Of the teachings of Christ as uh, they were meant to be, as as properly handed down uh, through the apostles and distilled. So we ask for the intercession of St. Peter Canisius. We also remember St. John Canti. uh, The Latinization of his name, Cantius, C A N T I U S, um, but he's uh, known as John Canti, K A N T Y. He was a priest and professor in Poland. He uh, came to the Agalonian University 
degree in Krakow, and uh, he gained his uh, degrees, including a doctorate in philosophy. So once he was a um, uh, once he was ordained a priest, he was offered a professorship at uh, this school uh, in sacred scripture. He eventually became the director of the theology department, and he held that professorship for some 50 years until his death in 1473. Now, what's interesting about St. John Canty is that he doesn't necessarily have a romantic story filled with details of uh, uh, daring do and, and travels throughout many places, but he is a model of um, steadiness, of piety, of uh, academic excellence. He was the kind of person who modeled not only in the classroom, but in every aspect of his life, what it meant to be a true disciple of Christ through his hum humility, his personality, through his life of prayer. People spoke about how he would spend long hours in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament being nourished as he was uh, passing on the faith to his students. And uh, the chapel on the campus of that university is where he was laid to rest. Uh, when I had the great privilege of being part of our diocesan delegation to World Youth Day in Poland in uh, 2016, I had the opportunity to see and to pray at St. John County's tomb itself. So um, his uh, feast day is on the 23rd of December, and uh, we pray for and we ask for his intercession as well. So I'd just like to point them out. Uh, when you look at the missalette and the optional memorials that are being provided, whether you use uh, Give Us the Stay, Magnificat, or the missalettes that you happen to use at your local parish, those days will be mentioned, but hard will be uh, written down in your resource, but hardly ever mentioned at the liturgy because of everything going on with these final days. And so let's look at also some of the wonderful celebrations that come up right after Christmas itself, because there might be a certain feeling of exhaustion at times, you know, having gotten through the uh, Christmas uh, solemnity and holiday, but there are wonderful celebrations that come up as well. Uh, on the 26th of December is the Feast of St. Stephen, the very first martyr, whose uh, uh, heroism is recounted in chapter 7 of Acts of the Apostles. He is one of the original seven deacons who was designated to be uh, particular assistants to the apostles. And so St. Stephen's Day is on the 26th of December. The very next day, December 27th, is of St. John the Apostle and Evangelist. Not to be confused with John the Baptist, but St. John the Apostle, the Gospel writer, the one who speaks about himself in, in a demurring way by calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's also a clever way of inviting us into the story, saying each of you who is reading this, who is pondering the life of Christ, is intended to be that for him as well. So we remember St. John on December 27th, and the uh, sad but triumphant day, the Feast of the Holy Innocents, on the 28th of December, the uh, boys age two and younger who were slaughtered, who were condemned to death by King Herod in trying to wipe out the child Jesus, when we recall that uh, Joseph received the message in a dream to take Mary and the child Jesus and flee to Egypt until Herod passed away and it was safe for them to return to Nazareth. So there was that, uh, there was that, um, 
uh, curveball thrown into everything. And uh, Matthew chapter 2 gives us that, uh, that account of uh, the great suffering that must have been uh, experienced there by so many families in Bethlehem at the time. And so we uh, recall the Holy Innocents. We celebrate them as well as Pope St. Sylvester on December 31st and the Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Thomas Becket, on December 29th. So, next hour, we'll have more conversations for you. How has the movement of communion and liberation impacted this priest's life? We'll take a look at that as we visit with Father John Rutten from the Diocese of Sioux Falls. That's on the other side of this break. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Real Presence Live.